0: This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet
1: Radio Network. Welcome back to the program where this is the question. Was the Jonathan Quick trade the most important one at deadline? For that, for that answer, we turn our attention to Ben Goetz uh, from the Las Vegas Review-Journal. This is after a big win last night, Vegas over the Calgary Flames. Ben, how are you today? Thanks so much for
2: doing this. Hey, not too bad. Just dealing with the latest as the goalie carousel turns uh, out here in Las Vegas. Uh, but what else is new for this team right
3: now?
1: Right. It's like Spinal Tap drummers. You know, every, uh, every couple of shows, boom, there's another one, uh, Cloud of Smoke. But, you know, not, not to make light, I mean, a couple of players went down yesterday. I know Logan Thompson is the big story. Before we get there, is there an update with Riley Smith and the LBI lower body injury?
2: haven't gotten one yet today the obvious expectation is that he will miss Saturday's game against the Edmonton Oilers which is a very huge game for the Knights uh so even that regardless of what happens afterward is obviously a key loss for the Knights because he's been such a yeah. consistent player for them through the years and obviously lately he's just been uh, on fire that injury uh, snaps his 9 game point streak which was tied for uh, the franchise record he's been really involved in all situations for the team. So we're waiting for more of a, you know, further update, a more detailed update. We'll see if we get that today from Mm -hmm. Bruce Cassidy. But as of right now, just the expectation is he's going to be out uh, at least one game.
1: Okay. Uh, The biggie, Logan Thompson um, injured back injured. uh, Doesn't sound good. What do you hear? What do you know about the Vegas goaltender? I want to get to quick here in a second, but what do you hear about Logan Thompson?
2: Yeah, I think they're still figuring out exactly how long this is going to be. But obviously, anytime time a goalie comes out the first game, he's back after six weeks off with a lower body injury. It's really scary. I think the scariest part, I think, for the nights and you're watching is that Thompson took himself out of the net. Obviously, the first time this happened in Minnesota, he was down for a while. Trainer came out, looked at him. They went back to the locker room. I mean, this time it was Thompson making a save kind of stand down for a little bit and then he just took himself off the ice, which if you know, you know, Thompson's backstory and how hard he had to work just to get himself in a crease into, you know, an NHL ice sheet, I think it says a lot when he's the one removing himself yeah. from that game. So obviously the fear is, you know, he reaggravated something. We're still waiting to hear officially if that is the case. That certainly I think is the likely outcome here. And if so, and if he is gonna end up missing significant time again, that's obviously a huge blow to the Golden
1: Knights. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's massive, which is why you know, I, I wake up this morning and think, you know what, when I look back at trade deadline for all the big-name players that went from the West to the East and all the huge names flying around, um, maybe the best deal in and around trade deadline time, or maybe, maybe the most impactful deal is going to turn out to be the John Quick deal. That man, just considering what Vegas is going through right now and the uncertainty about Logan Thompson and and, and when or if he's going to be able to, to make his way back. And if so, how impactful will he be? Um, Listen, I remember, you know, banging the drum uh, for the Pittsburgh Penguins. You know, when you consider the injury history of someone like Tristan Jari and you look at performance of their goaltenders and you look at depth uh, of the position in the organization and you look that the general manager himself was a goaltender and probably really values that um, position, I was surprised that Pittsburgh actually didn't try to address a goalie depth issue as well. Um, But how... I guess I'm guessing everyone's feeling pretty good around Vegas uh, after making the the Jonathan Quick deal, because that may be the one, I don't know, if saves Vegas is too strong, but it kind of feels like that today. Doesn't it, Ben? Like the John Quick deal, whether they knew it or not at the deadline, might be the most impactful deal made by any GM.
2: No, it definitely feels that way, especially like, as you said, as you look at the Knights goaltending depth chart right now, you're, you have down Logan Thompson, we're not sure exactly how long, but certainly I don't think we're expecting him back anytime soon. You're down Aiden Hill, his backup for most of the year, who, as we've last heard, is not skating yet, so you're not expecting him back uh, anytime soon either. And then you've got Laurent Bersois, who has played really well, but in only a three-game NHL sample size this year, is coming off an off-season hip surgery of his own and has really never had to kind of carry the mail in the NHL. So if you're the Knights and you're with the best record of the Western Conference and Pacific Division still despite all this going on, and you don't add a yeah. goaltender who has been able to kind of give them consistent starts, I mean you're really up a creek at that point. And the crazy part about the, the quick deal is as you mentioned, it might be the most impactful thing, but even for the Knights themselves, it was probably one of the you know easier deals to get done. It was only a seventh round pick to the Columbus Blue Jackets giving up goaltender Michael Hutchinson who would get to play in a game for uh, the NHL team here this year. You even look at the nice other moves where Ivan Barbashev I think has fit in really well, but that costs you a former first-round pick in Zach Dean. Teddy blueger has been a nice add. That was a fourth-round pick. And so they've made actually good trades, I think, throughout this deadline. I think you would give positive you know, reception to all three of them. But the quick, which was, like I said, the latest to come through and cost the Knights the least has definitely, I think been the most important for them moving forward. Cause I don't know how you can say quick isn't the leader of the clubhouse at this point to be the potential yeah. playoff starter for this team.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I'm, um, Oh, by the way, has there been any, cause I haven't heard a thing. Uh, you're a lot closer to it than I am. Uh, have there been any whispers about Aiden Hill at all? I mean, you mentioned him a couple of seconds ago, but it's like kind of eerily quiet all around Aiden Hill.
2: Yeah, the last update, like I said, we got, which was a couple days ago, still not skating, which is obviously uh, tough news for him because he was playing some of the best hockey of his career before he went down. Obviously, it's a real tight window if he's even going to attempt to comeback. Uh, this year with just 11 games left on the night schedule so yeah that was the last update he reaggravated a lower body injury that he had previously he missed some time uh, after winning a game against the Tampa Bay Lightning came back for the night's road trip and got hurt again in Florida and went down so you no know, obviously uh, it's a real tough break for him so yeah it certainly doesn't sound like the Knights are expecting him back and that he's really kind of Expected to be in the mix here, at least by the beginning of the playoffs.
1: If um, if Vegas didn't end up getting Jonathan Quick, were they going to bother getting a goaltender at all? Like, was this like a... Obviously, it was a a target for Kelly McCrimmon, but if it wasn't going to be Quick, was it going to be someone else? Like, were they like, in, the, in talks? Were they close to... Uh, I don't know how much you know about, like, Kelly McCrimmon's pursuit of goaltending around deadline. Like, were they getting, were they coming back with a goaltender from somewhere at the end of deadline?
2: I do believe that was the plan. They had scouting meetings where they reviewed a list of goaltenders that they thought were going to be available. They tried to figure out what could happen. And then, as you said, I think the quick trade almost kind of fell in their laps a little bit where, you know, they make the deal the day after he gets officially dealt from the Los Angeles Kings to the Blue Jackets. And I think for them, with you know the acquisition co- cost being what it was and how low it was, I think it just made sense to kind of move him up the top of their list with all the other business that they wanted to get done at the trade deadline. But I definitely think that was something that they were exploring, uh, even beforehand, knowing that they weren't exactly sure when Thompson and Versois would be ready. And, of course, as we found out, they probably weren't 100% confident that even if Thompson – came back that he could hold up. And uh, Hill at that point had already uh, suffered his first lower body injury that he later reaggravated. So I'm sure there was concern in the back of their mind as well. So I definitely think adding goaltending insurance was a priority for them. They just happened to get probably you know, the most high-profile insurance policy possible with a two-time Stanley Cup winner.
1: Yeah, and had a a goaltending season for the ages back in in 2012 where there was no better goaltender on the planet um, than Jonathan Quick. Um, You mentioned Ivan Barbashev a couple of seconds ago as well, and sometimes it's, again, not always the headline maker that turns out to be the most impactful acquisition at trade deadline time. What was it? I'm going to just betray my bias here. I've always liked Barbashev. I really think this is a smart pickup by Vegas. You know, kudos to Kelly McCrimmon on this one. Um, it's always good when you can bring in a sort of blend of skill and a little bit of nastiness um, as well to the lineup. This guy hits for keeps when the games get tighter. Uh, he gets going. Uh, what's the thinking behind bringing Ivan Barbashev in, other than the obvious, which is that you know that marriage of a guy that's a pretty skilled player who brings a little bit of nastiness to the lineup as well.
2: Yeah, I think you hit on exactly what they were hoping to get. That was kind of, I think, the player type they were looking for. A guy with, you know, not just kind of the nastiness, but some inside presence. A guy who would get to the front of the net, who would help them score a little bit more. Kind of the greasy goals you need around playoff time. But still pack enough skill in that package to be able to play with top players. Like he's been on the first line with Jack Eichel and Jonathan Marchessault, basically this entire time. Yeah. And Marchessault, I was talking to him the other day, he kind of used the term, he's been the quote-unquote answer to our line. He's made it, you know, fit where you've got these great skilled players with Jack Eichel, who's terrific carrying the puck. Marcheseau's, you know, a terrific shooter. He has a great shot to score a goal last night. And then you add a guy like Barbashev, who has the skill to play with those guys and make plays, you know, with them, we've seen him activate guys like Eichel off the rush and things like that. But then when they get in the zone, he's always around the front of the net, screening, going for tips, deflections, which is just doing some of those little things that help those two skill guys out. And like I said, it kind of feels like, you know, to use a big Lebowski line, he's the rug that tied the room together in terms of that (laughs) nice top line. And so I think that was certainly the kind of guy that they were looking for at this deadline. He just happened to kind of check all the boxes they needed in one go.
1: Well, that's just like, that's just like your opinion, man. Like that's, that's just your like opinion. Uh, that's one of my favorite movies, Ben. So, uh, bra- bravo for, uh, for bringing that up. I uh, really tied the room together. Um, how do you, uh, man, you just dropped me there. I haven't heard a good big Lebowski reference in a long time. How do you, uh, how do you view Eichel's? season so far and by the way do you find it odd that even though they weren't traded for one another uh the comparison in buffalo is still eichel and tage thompson
2: yeah it is really fascinating thank you i do try my best uh, eichel's had an interesting <laughs> you know arc throughout the season uh because it feels like he hit the ground running so well for the first third of the season where the Knights are off to this terrific start they're actually you know, neck and neck with Boston for a lot of that time. And he's leading the way. And it felt like, okay, everything that Knights hoped that they were getting out of this trade is coming together, especially because that includes a hat trick in Buffalo uh, in his first or second return there, because the first one didn't go so well. So it felt like he was kind of back on top of his game in the hockey world. Then he goes through this injury in a little bit, the middle part of the year, he comes back and he's really kind of sliding heading into the all-star break. It's not really going in for him. It feels like he's hitting this lull. And I don't know whether it's just getting a break, whether it's the fact that he and a bunch of teammates got away to Hawaii, but he's come back, you know, really, really strong. He's been driving a lot of their success lately. It's obviously not been maybe the, you know, point per game or two points per game every single night for him and his line with Mark Chasseau and Barbashev, but they really have been contributing offensively. A lot. I think he's finding his game a lot more. And Bruce Cassidy talked about it. Really does feel like, you know, as you need your best players to do this time of year, he's finding another gear when the Knights need it most, especially at five on five. The one I think question mark still kind of holding him back and holding this team back is what is the right spot on the power play for him? How can they get that unit to click? It's basically been a huge, massive funk since Mark Stone uh, went out. They only have eight power play goals. In their last 29 games, it's really been a brutal stretch. And they've tried different things. They've actually moved Eichel to the point recently away from the half wall just to see if a different look can get something going. But that obviously creates issues of like, well, you have a high turnover. Is now Eichel, your lone man back, defending a shorthanded two-on-one. That could create some issues. So I think his five-on-five game has really popped. He's kind of back to where he was at the beginning of the year when he was really standing out. Now, the next phase is can they get that power play component to click into place? Because that, even more than the goaltending, probably right now is kind of the big flashing warning light on this team right now. If you were to have concerns going into the playoffs,
1: right? Uh, I'm curious about the mood of the team, the mood around the organization, you know, coming off the disappointment of last season. And listen, we, I, we look at last season and we say, well, injuries did them in, and, and that's legitimate. Um, but we know the expectation is always Stanley Cup or bust uh, with this owner, with this organization. Um, the drama involving the goaltender is uh, the goaltender's uh, is one thing. Uh, how would you describe the mood around the team right now? Given that there is always pressure on everybody: George McPhee, Kelly McCrimmon, Bruce Cassidy, um, everybody. You know the, uh, the, the the peanut vendors, all of them pressure on this organization everywhere. What's the mood like these days?
2: Yeah, so obviously I think it took a hit last night with two, you know, pretty popular players going down. But the weird thing about, I think, this year, even compared to previous years, where you felt that pressure, I think, on an almost day-to-day basis, is that things have felt much at least lighter and breezier in the locker room for most of this year. Uh, Jonathan Marsh, though, and what I thought was a really revealing comment to me the other day, said, it feels like the first year again in terms of how close this team is, that they've really created a bond where they're doing different silly little things where Eichel's fishing hats out of bins after squaring a hat trick against the Columbus Blue Jackets as part of a new t- team tradition. They've got the new player of the game yeah. thing where they've got a big Elvis wig and Elvis glasses that Eichel was behind that they're doing this year. And as Marcel said, they just added a bunch of guys that have kind of made things it's more fun to be around where, you know, Phil Kessel is obviously kind of this legendary character. Thompson, when <laughs> he's in the net, is not afraid to kind of have a back and forth with anybody. Uh, same with rookie Paul Cotter, who will step the veterans, you know, just to poke a little bit of fun at them. Uh, you know, Jonathan Quick, I think, already has impressed teams with the stories he can tell from his cup runs. They've got, you know, former captains in addition to Mark Stone and Alex Petrangelo, you know, Jack Eichel, uh, Alec Martinez and Riley Smith. There's two guys that on other teams would certainly be worthy of wearing a C. So I think that's been the interesting part about this team is that, you know, the vibes as much as the on ice play have really seemed to carry them through a lot of games and through a lot of close games. And that's something that, you know, Marshall said they were kind of searching for in previous years. I do think kind of the pressure and the weight of expectations got to them a little bit more in previous years, but right now, now it does feel like they've been able to kind of ease the burden on their shoulders a little bit and just have a lot more fun this year. I think it's obviously going to get tested once they get into the playoffs and these games get a lot harder. I mean, even down the stretch, the schedule is still pretty gnarly for them the rest of the way with a lot of sure. you know Pacific Division teams and all Western Conference teams. But I mean, the mood definitely is more relaxed. And I'm curious to see if they're able to keep that up moving forward.
1: Strikes and gutters, ups and downs. Always appreciate the Lebowski references. Ben, you be well. Thanks for brightening my day today with the, uh, with the big Lebowski polls. Appreciate it, pal. Hey,
2: No, happy to do it. Anytime. Thanks for having me.
1: There he is, the great Ben Goats, uh, who covers the Vegas Golden Knights big win last night against uh, the Calgary Flames. Uh, still the top team in the West, uh, Ben, from the Las Vegas Review-Journal. All right, hustling here. Hour two's coming up. You're going to hear from... Jason Robertson of the Dallas Stars, uh, the interview that Elliot and I conducted going back to Monday in Dallas. Uh, and Kevin Stowe's is going to join me in moments. The author of The Science of Hockey, the Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport. Oh, and by the way, since we were bad, didn't get to it yesterday. The return of Random Player of the Day. Stay tuned. Hour 2 is on the horizon. Keep it here.
2: Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptors Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple,
4: Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
1: Welcome to Hour 2. Welcome back to the program. Merrick, along with you for another 60 or so. The Science of Hockey is a book written by a gentleman by the name of Kevin Snow, uh, who I first got to meet when he was uh, running the communications department for the Buffalo Sabres. The math, technology, and data behind the sport. It's a fascinating look um, at the game that we all love, breaking it down from... These are the chapters, folks. The puck, the rink, skating, shooting, goaltending, face-offs, in-game strategies, NHL draft... Uh, contact and injuries, training and fitness analytics, and the future of hockey. So Kevin's going to be joining me here in a few minutes after we get to Matt Marchese, Something uh, I was very negligent about yesterday, but you know, as I've been told before by many people here in my own company, I'm a very bad host. Um, Maddie, who are we talking about today?
3: So uh, we're talking about Paul Lawless today, and there's a there's a little bit of a backstory here, and I'll give you a, a small little story. Uh, It's from Jennifer and Nolan Kaufman. Now, Jennifer's maiden name is (laughs) Wallace. So Uh. she was very interested in this. Now, uh, every time they were at a Cyclones game, they would see the retired number for lawless it it, and she said it always caught their their eye because it was her maiden name so she she thought did gary lawless play hockey and in cincinnati and it turned out to be paul lawless and he did play in the nhl so that's why she wanted to know a little bit more about paul Uh lawless
1: all right jennifer and nolan this one is uh for you and that is a great backstory and there's a lot of great stuff about cincinnati by the way that i want to get to because lawless um, as Jennifer mentions in, in her note, is such a hockey hero in Cincinnati. When he played with the Cyclones, uh, there were a couple of seasons where, I want to say uh, there were a couple of seasons he had 10, 120-point seasons, uh, 44, 45 goals. I'm going to get to Cincinnati here in a second. But Paul Lawless, when I think about him, the first thing that comes to mind, and he played with Hartford, Philadelphia, Vancouver and Toronto I don't think I'm leaving any teams out there um, he was fast man played uh, plays junior with the Windsor Spitfires in the early 80s was sort of up and down between the Windsor Spitfires and the Hartford Whalers uh, the team that drafted him 14th overall in the 1982 that is the Gord Kluzak draft he was quick this guy had fast, be like every year in the OHL, he won fastest skater, coaches poll, all of it, fastest skater. He was just that guy. And there are some players that we look at and we say born in the wrong era. And Paul Lawless is one of those guys. If Paul Lawless were born into this era of hockey and were a player right now with the Windsor Spitfires, instead of a player in the Windsor Spitfire organization in 1981, We'd be talking about him like this guy is going to be a 10, 15-year player in the NHL. This guy can flat-out fly. Um, He is part of a record with the Hartford Whalers uh, that occurred on January 4th, 1987. Two goals and four assists against the Toronto Maple Leafs, good for six points. Um, A record that was tied twice by Ron Francis and one by Eric Stahl. Now, the trades are interesting. So he gets traded from Hartford to Philadelphia. That would be a left-winger for left-winger swap. Uh, Lindsey Carson goes the other way from Philadelphia to Hartford, okay? Philadelphia, he gets traded to the Vancouver Canucks for someone who I can still remember my cousin Steve from Livonia, who took me to Joe Louis Arena when I was a kid, and said I want to show you the future of the Detroit Red Wings blue line, uh, a guy that's gonna you know be the you know top defenseman in the NHL for a, for a decade, and that man was the man that was traded also for uh, for uh, for Paul Lawless in the Philly Vancouver deal, Willie Huber, Maddie, Willie Huber goes the other way. But then, and here's where this gets a little bit intriguing, he goes from Vancouver to Toronto in exchange for. Dallas Stars head coach, Peter DeBoer, who he would have missed by, I think, one or maybe two seasons. DeBoer played with the Windsor Spitfires as well. Uh, DeBoer played on a team uh, alongside Florida Panthers head coach, Paul Maurice, uh, but no, they did not overlap uh, in Windsor at all. Okay, so done with the NHL, he goes to the International Hockey League, and as Jennifer points out, plays with the Cincinnati Cyclones. Uh, on his team, players like the legendary Don Biggs. Anyone who follows minor hockey in North America knows the name Don Biggs. His son, Tyler Biggs, was a first-round draft pick uh, of Brian Burke and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Donnie Biggs was a legendary minor hockey score, minor league hockey scorer, like elite, elite, elite. Um, Dallas Aikens would have played on that Cincinnati Cyclones team as well. Um, you know, in, in, in today's game where it's less on get to the inside, get to the inside, this, the, Lawless just would have been great. He had um, <laughs> the one thing that Paul Lawless probably did better than maybe anyone in the, geez, Maddie, dare I say, in the history of the game was get dressed quickly. <laughs> the legend of Paul Lawless. I know when we look at him, and we you've known, I'm going to tell you a story, and you're going to love this because you've, you've probably met people that are like this. Um, we think about Paul Lawless, and we think about how fast the feet were. This guy was like, everything happened suddenly with Paul Lawless. So t- he would drive teammates crazy because what he would do in the dressing room is he would bring a putter and a golf ball and would have a little paper cup, and this is the way he would relax before games. He would, he would just putt to clear his mind, relax, and it would be like he would start getting dressed, literally Maddie, five minutes before they had to get out on the ice. And I'm not sure if guys ever timed him, but anyone that I've ever asked about with Paul Lawless and and getting dressed, they say he could do it in two minutes. Apparently, no one got dressed quicker than Paul Lawless. Um, he, uh, he used to have a saying as well. One player told me this when you're on a like a two on one or an odd man or whatever a two on two, if you dumped the puck in on his side, he would skate off and go to the bench right away <laughs> and if you ever gave him grief on the ice, you'll love this one, Maddie. His retort back was always, "You dumped it in, you go get it
0: I'm not <laughs> playing fetch for
1: I'm not playing fetch for you so He's playing in Cincinnati, and the Cincinnati Gardens is a fascinating place because it's like a mini Maple Leaf Gardens. Like that rink, although it only held uh, 10,000, it's a 10,000 seat venue, I believe. It was constructed to look like a miniature Maple Leaf Gardens. And when Lawless was there, it was a, a Florida Panthers uh affiliates and dennis DeRoger was one of that was one of the coaches um they ended up punting him um because he kind of wanted a sort of dump and fight kind of kind of team and that's not what the uh, the florida panthers were all about this would have been the time when bobby clark was running the team chuck fletcher would have been the general manager um, of the minor league operation and they fired derogé and they brought in terry murray all right, like, whoa, big time coach, big time hockey name here. But there's there's one thing I want to end on when it comes to uh when it when it comes to uh, uh to Paul Lawless and the Cincinnati Cyclones. Have you ever heard of Dennis Wildman Walker? No. Does that name ring a bell for you at all? So in Cincinnati, uh there's a a legendary um radio broadcaster. Uh, by the name of Dennis Wildman Walker and he was uh, a legendary broadcaster in the city of Cincinnati was also the in arena announcer for the Cincinnati Cyclones now as I understand it Wildman Walker still goes to Columbus Blue Jackets games I don't know if he's a season ticket holder I don't know how often he goes but he has been known to populate nationwide arena um, the wild man still goes there, and as part of a radio stunt, and this would have been when, um, uh, this would have been when Lawless was still there. Uh, in the eighties, he had like big, huge, long rock star hair, and it was a conversation with Dallas Akins. Who at that point, I think you know Dallas. You know he, it wasn't as if you know Dallas is scoring like fifteen or twenty goals every year. I think he had like two or three, and I can't remember how many games he or how many goals he he bet Dallas he could score or not. But if Dallas Aiken scored like five or six goals, for example, he agreed that they would uh, that he would allow his head to be shaved. And I'm pretty sure I mean, he I mean, he hit the number. I'm not sure what it was, and Wildman got his head shaved by. Dallas Akins, Paul Lawless, and I think Donnie Biggs as well. There is photographic evidence of this apparently somewhere. I'm gonna hunt for it after the show. If anyone has the Google machine standing by and can find me a picture of Wild Man Dennis Walker getting his head shaved by Dallas Aikens, Don Biggs, and today's topic for random player of the day, Paul Lawless, please send it along and we'll we'll tweet it out. Wildman also, by the way. Talk, talk about radio stunts. He vowed to uh, to live on top of a billboard until the Cincinnati Bengals won a game one season, and he ended up <laughs> living there for 61 days. The radio <laughs> stunt gone horribly wrong. They had to, like, bring a porta potty up to the top of the billboard. <laughs> oh <laughs> no shower, God. nothing. Stayed there for 61 days, dude. Radio is a different place then. Anyway, that's me exhausting the tank, emptying the tank about Paul Lawless, and ended up with a a head shaving at Cincinnati Gardens involving Paul Lawless, Dallas Akins, Donnie Biggs. That's what I got, Maddie. What do you got?
3: Uh, just well, I can't I can't add anything great to that because that was fantastic. Uh, just a quick one. <laughs> he did one. play. He did play junior hockey with a certain. Uh, player who was also in a movie and played an important part in a movie. Jeff, do you know who that is? In
1: a movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so he would have played junior hockey from, I want to say, 81 to 83 or 84 with Windsor. You got the team right. So that that was... After slap shot came out, mm-hmm. is it someone from
3: Youngblood? It sure is. Oh no way! Who is it? It's George Finn, who played Carl Racky. Racky, no way! He played on Windsor. He sure did. No way! What were his numbers like? Racky, uh, eh? what were his numbers like? He put. Play- he played in the uh, 82-83 season. He had 20 goals and 35, po- uh, 35 assists in 67 games with 128 penalty minutes.
1: That's amazing. See, that's a nice little bit. That's a good one. There we got some good stuff today to this one. That's good.
3: It's not achieving
1: your head at Cincinnati Gardens, but nonetheless, it's still some really good stuff there. All right. Um, thank you, Jennifer and Nolan, for sending that one along. That is probably a whole lot of information about... Paul Lawless and, you know, other various characters around Cincinnati and the Cyclones back in the uh, in the 80s and early 90s. Um, for your chance to nominate your very own random player of the day, jmshow at sparsnet.ca is the email. That was a good one. Paul Lawless stories. I really enjoyed that. He was fast, man. Oh, was that guy fast? Okay. I want to talk to you about a book that I read on my way back from Dallas uh, a couple of days ago. It's called The Science of Hockey the math, technology, and data behind the sport. Now, I met Kevin Snow when he was working with the Buffalo Sabres about a million years ago, uh, and he's a very accomplished hockey thinker, um writer as well and we'll bring him onto the program to talk about his latest the science of hockey kevin i know i blathered on a bit about um paul lawless and the cincinnati cyclones so thanks for hanging in there as i'm sure you're waiting on hold saying how much goofy information do i have to listen to until i can talk about a very serious book
0: no not a problem jeff i always enjoy the random player of the day segment and i think you're probably the only one in the hockey industry that can blather on like that about all Lawless for endless amounts of time, but
1: it was enjoyable, that's for sure. You, 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 the, uh, the, the secret that I've learned, Kevin, is if you're not sure about something, say it loud. A lot of people in the industry <laughs> have sort of caught on to that, and you can make a, a good, I said, you can make a really good living being a BSer. So don't be too impressed. And you do, you do it well, uh, Thank Jeff. you for the compliment. <laughs> thank you, sir. I have you fooled. I have you fooled. Tricked him again. Every two weeks, the paycheck shows up, and my wife says, I thought I heard someone yelling, Stop Thief. Um, I love this book. Kevin I, uh, I I really enjoyed this I, I knew that I wanted to when I when I sat down to read it that I didn't want to read this book you know I think a lot of us I'm guilty of this read books in stops and starts five pages here seven pages there put it down for a week pick it up again maybe read a dozen and then it's two pages I knew that I wanted to park a lot of time uh, all at one shot so uh on my way back from Dallas I read it and it's a it's a it's a fantastic it's a really interesting look at a lot of the things that we take for granted. For example, in hockey, like we take for granted things like the puck. There are great stories around the puck and how the puck came to be right now, whether it's the Nets, and there's a symmetry between the puck and the Nets, and someone, you know, called Art Ross, who many fans might just know is the guy from the trophy, but he has an entire story behind him as well. Um, I'm curious as just as a, as a way to open up, so I want to dive into a few things of here, uh, things here, which was your favorite chapter to write? And with the writing comes the research. So which was your favorite chapter of this book to research and to get down to paper?
0: Um, probably the chapter on the NHL draft. I've always been a bit of a draft nerd uh, to, uh, going back to being a teenager and Really following the draft, and actually I, I interned at the Hockey News when I, was, when I went to Sheridan College and I took journalism. And I, I worked on the 1991 draft issue, and I was doing player research. And at, at that time, player research involved calling the teams and getting having to confirm bio information. And in some cases, I was talking directly to players to find out where they played minor hockey. I, I remember speaking to Pat Saloon on the phone one day about getting his stats and things like that. and So it's always kind of fascinated me just in the process of how the scouting takes place, uh, not just on the ice, but off the ice. Now the way the combine's been incorporated into it and why the different elements of the combine come into play. And then being being able to kind of draw on my experiences working with the the Buffalo Sabres and being able to talk to scouts and general managers. I worked a lot with Darcy Regeer and interacted with him quite a bit and just really learning kind of what, they look for in a player and the process of how they go about the scouting and things like that. So to kind of dive deeper into the draft was something I really enjoyed and spoke to Sam Cosentino from Sportsnet, who is a big draft nerd as well and one of the smartest people I know when it comes to oh, stuff yeah. like that. So it was very, very interesting to kind of get, get Sam's perspective on things and also was able to speak with Chris Gear, who's the former assistant GM of the, of the Vancouver Canucks, and to speak to someone like that to be able to get their insight into what they're thinking about a player and why they think that the things they do about a player. So that was for me, a really enjoyable chapter, but there are 11 other chapters that I did enjoy writing as well, but that just happens to be one of my favorites.
1: Uh, I love that one. Um, that's chapter eight, the NHL draft. And I'm with you. Like we're both draft nicks. And then, by the way, I have, you know, that draft issue that the hockey news puts out uh, every year. I mean, that used to be like pretty much the only place you can get information on the draft. Right? Mm-hmm. This is, you know, well before, you know, the the internet and and websites like Elite Prospects and anything like that, or you know, having you know Sam on staff with us to be able to to put all these th- these things together, and Jason Buchla working with us as well, um, doing uh, doing similar that hockey news draft issue, like, I would gobble it up. I would take it everywhere, memorize it. I was a guy that, like, wouldn't leave the television, watch the draft from beginning to end. I was, and still am very much, it's real, real a treat to be part of it. Um, I was always that guy. And one of the things that I'm really fascinated about in the draft is I wonder if at some point, this may be counterintuitive, but you say to yourself, Is there too much information out there that it can actually cloud your judgment when it comes time to choosing hockey players? And I'll give you an example. Um, And you mentioned the combine a second ago. That's a whole other different element and a whole different group of – Um, of data points that you introduce into evaluating a player the likes of which um, you know they didn't have back in in 1991 that was the Eric Lindros draft you referenced Pat Falloon he goes second Scott uh, Niedermeyer goes third Um, having information from the combine go into the uh, the 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 scouting ecosystem that you're part of is kind of like playing cards and constantly adding a deck to it as you keep (laughs) playing and I'm, I'm going I'm to go with, with one very specific story. I'm not going to name the team um, because when I was told this, I, was, I swore that I, that I wouldn't name who the team was. So there was one team in the NHL draft back when, when uh, Braden Point, who's now scored 45 goals in the NHL and clearly distinguished himself as one of the best players in the NHL, um, was passed over by a team because he had very poor force plate results. And this one person who was very influential on the staff uh, came up with the stat that no one who had bad force plate results ever ended up doing anything of significance in the NHL. Now, the Western Scouts, as you can imagine for this team, you know, scream at the table, you know, take the shoe off and pound it you've seen it before, Kevin, in your uh, previous capacity. Um, Like, they're like, no, we can't. Like, you don't understand. Like, we can't pass this player up. But it was... The tug and pull of well there's a whole new data set here you know that we get from the combine and if we're gonna put some value into it this is the moment where the rubber hits the road and it becomes the wrong choice do you think it's possible that there might be too much information or is it a case of sometimes the information isn't distilled or edited or thought about properly I know that's a very long-winded question
0: I think there are ways that you can overanalyze, especially with the combine. You think back to the uh, the Sam Bennett draft when he couldn't do a pull-up, and so much was made of him not be- being able to do a pull-up. But this is a guy who was tearing up junior hockey. I forget, he had what, 40, 50-goal season in his draft year, and he was yeah, going to be an NHL player, but so much was made of the pull-up situation. It was written about constantly. Same thing happened, um, Casey Middlestat with the Sabres now. He couldn't do one either, and it was just so much is made of these things. And I've been to, I've been to several drafts, of, and being able to meet these kids, they're, they're kids, they're eighteen year, 18 year old kids. They're not physically developed yet. They're these are these are young kids who are probably three and four years away from being at their peak physical shape. And you can look at a kid now to look, to be able to look at an eighteen year old and say he's going to be this is impossible. You can use the the the, the combine testing. Is really a, a product of analytics, and you can use some of those things to put into place. Saying, okay, well, if he if he can do the force plates now, what what what's his potential three years down the road in terms of strength? And there's there's those things you can incorporate right. into it. But it's literally impossible to really look at an 18 year old and kind of project three or four years out. And that's why I think in, the NHL draft in general is one of the most difficult ones to, to analyze because of you, you look at the NFL draft. You're drafting 21-year-olds who yeah. may not be in who may not be in the NFL for two or three years, or in the case of baseball, three and four years out. But again, these guys are 21, 22, 23. By the time they make their, their debut in the in their their own sport, but we're we're expecting hockey players at 18, 19 years old to be in some cases the savior of a team. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. So I think yeah, there's definitely a way that there's too much information out there that it. It's, it's overanalyzed is probably the best word for it, but it's necessary in some yeah. forms. But to, to to think you have to use every single piece to analyze a player is wrong.
1: Hundred percent. You know, it, it's interesting. I had one conversation at the combine with one uh, with a trainer from one team, and I said, you know, what do you what do you get from this? And he said, to be blunt, there's only one thing that I pull out of this thing. And I said, what's that? He said, where players are 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 predisposed to injury. He said that mm-hmm. that's that's about the only thing of value that, that I take out of this, like, okay, is, is you know, is the is the hip firing uh, enough? Like is the you know, where where, where are his shoulders at? Or is there a predisposition to somewhere on their body? he uh, said that's that's one of the main things we take out of here. One of the other really interesting chapters, I mean I'm I'm gonna bounce around here a lot on you, Kevin, but I really enjoyed your book and I wanna be as as thorough as I can be in the in the time that we have. I really enjoyed the stuff on shooting and, and I'll tell you why. Because I foolishly believed, uh, because I was told this, and we all were growing up. There's an old saying in hockey. I'm sure you heard it a million times. We all believed it because we never questioned things like this. You can't teach touch. Goal scorers are born. Mike Bossie was born that way. Yari Curry was born that way. We know now that that's not true. And we have a lot of science behind it, a lot of investigation behind it. Um, Give us a a quick riff on on the shooting chapter here and what you've learned about shooters in the NHL now that we didn't know before and dopes like me grew up parroting back, you can't teach touch, you can't teach touch.
0: Well, the thing I take away from the shooting chapter is just, you know, you think back to when we were growing up, it was always about weight shift. When, When a player's shooting, it's back foot to front foot, just... You'd stand and yep. shooting pucks against the boards or in your driveway, whatever, tennis balls, and just, it was just the repetitive motion of just shooting. Whereas the way that NHL has developed now, it's about sh- it's about shooting at speed and deception and footwork and you know the the, the stride formation as they call it, where the player the players a left handed shooter is now shooting off his left foot instead of driving towards his right foot, and these are six foot five guys who can move like connor mcdavid Tage thompson and buffalo these guys are moving at mm-hmm. such such quick speeds and being able to get shots off in traffic and you know th- that a lot of it goes back to the sticks they're using now too and this the t- the science of what they're doing with sticks in terms of you know the, the stick has really become an extension of the body for a shooter and you, you've got these things that are these sticks that weigh like 350 grams like three quarters of a pound and you know, there, it's not like when I was growing up using those fiberglass sticks where the, the Coho fiberglass, where all you cared about was what kind of curve you had on it. Now you've got these guys where these yep. sticks that so you watch Ovechkin, His sticks almost bending in half when he gets a shot off. And to be able to utilize the technology of the sticks with the footwork and the speed has really changed the game in terms of shooting.
1: You know what I used to love, Kevin? Do you remember the um, the era this would have been... Oh boy. I'm going to date myself here 2003. It was the heyday and like you're you're an old equipment dog from National Sports so I I can throw this out to you and you'll get it. Yep. The heyday of the um, the TPS XN10s which everybody had to have. So Brad Jansen would have been the main stick rep and everybody in the NHL was racing to get TPS XN10s. And there were only a few players that could that really had the hands to use some of those those early composites sticks. Like, sure, your shot goes real hard, but taking hard passes was really challenging. Like, if you're Matt Sundin, sure, no problem. If you're Daniel Alfredson, sure, no problem. But there was a prestige that came along with having an XN10, and everybody wanted to have them, and you started to see players... It had to remember they would put like their skate behind the stick to sort of pad it or cushion it when they got a pass mm-hmm. because they didn't want it flying off their heel or, or flying off their toe. Like I look at the development, I'm glad you mentioned sticks. I look at the development of sticks now uh, to sticks then, but also. The skill set and the one thing that I'm always reminded of is as I watch like my kids play minor slash youth hockey that, you know, they'll never play a game with a wooden stick. So they'll never have to make that transition. They'll never have to make that change. They just grew up with composite sticks. They always have. But I remember watching way back in the early 2000s, guys, you know you know, really struggling as the game changed from wooden sticks to composite technology. I know there was the, the, Easton, uh, the Easton phase in there in between as well but the ability and the hands that come along with being able to use that technology I think are a big part of it and a lot of it is kids didn't have to stop doing something and relearn something they just grew mm-hmm. up knowing all of our sticks are composite so this is how we learn how to shoot and this is how we learn to take passes. Do you have a thought on the evolution of the stick?
0: Yeah, you, you watch a game now, and you're seeing like just the, the passing. You, you've got a guy from going from behind the net to that bumper spot in front of the net, and they're rifling each other. And it, well, If you get a chance to, if you, if you haven't played the game, to hold a, a, one of the current sticks, there, there's nothing to them. And it amazes me these these guys, like you said, yeah. can take a pass and hold, control the puck. Not just get the pass, but control it. And I'll mm-hmm. think back to uh, when I started with the, with the Sabres in 2005. When the stick reps would come in in the locker room area, they would lay all the sticks out, and the guys would li- literally grab four or five sticks, and some of the guys were just kind of transitioning at that time to the different sticks. And they'd go out on the ice, and all they wanted to do was pass. They wanted to just pass back and forth, pat- pass it off the board to kind of f- get a feel for it. Some guys immediately would come back in and literally throw the sticks. But, no, can't, can't do it. They would just walk away. Because the frustration of being able to adjust to these sticks, whereas other guys, to them, it was more about how how is their shot going to be with, with with these sticks and getting getting used to the flex of the stick and things like that. And it's 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 it changed so much so quickly. I think that it t- took a little adjustment, but like mm-hmm. you said, like your your kids are doing it. My daughter plays and she's she's not, never used anything but a composite stick. So like, I I see the stuff she's got now, and I can't believe anybody can shoot with these things. Whereas no, when we played, it was what kind of curve do you have in the stick, and whose name is, it? is it the <laughs> Lemieux stick, or the, is it the 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 Eiserman uh, yeah. pattern, or something like that? Now it's what kind of flex does it have? What kind? What's it made of? Do you want to spend three hundred dollars on a stick that might last you two weeks? Like it's it's a really yeah. strange evolution, but it's 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 better for the game now. But it, you're right, it does take a lot a lot of getting used to.
1: Yeah, the, the conversation back then was, which kind of Titan do you have, the red one or the white one? Oh, they're all yeah. out of the white ones at the barrel and at Canadian Tire, so I just grabbed the red one for $15. bucks. Um, i have always maintained, and I'm, I'm glad you parked a lot of time in your book. And I'm, I'm talking to Kevin Snow, the author of The Science of Hockey, The Math Technology and Data Behind the Sport. I'm glad you parked a lot of time in your book talking about goaltending. Now, the point that I've been trying to make over the past, I don't know, however many years is, I don't know one particular position in any sport that's evolved more and quicker than goaltender in hockey. You know, you look at goaltenders, you know, even 20 years ago and they play profoundly differently than they do now. Go look at goalies from the eighties, go look at goalies from the seventies and, and into the sixties and keep going all the way back. And it's not, comparing apples and oranges it's comparing chalk and cheese these things they it's just so like they may sort of look similar but the way that they play is so radically different and I love talking to Kevin Woodley to me Kevin Woodley's an absolute gem in this game and so I'm glad you dedicated some time to having conversations with Woodley about the net mining position what was most fascinating to you that you were able to get into this book about the art the craft of goaltending
0: well as you like to say, Jeff, I'm of a certain vintage where I remember the guys of the, the Grand Fures <laughs> and the Mike Vernons back in the day. And if you think of some of the most iconic uh, images of a guy scoring, a uh, player scoring from the wing, like Gretzky scoring against uh, St. Louis, I think it was, or no, Calgary, sorry. And then Iserman scoring against Calgary, Louis, yeah, over the shoulder. Yeah, yeah. The, just those those blasts from the wing and just... The way the goalies are, they were positioned. That the Grand fear looked like he was falling down all the time. He kind of was shuffling around in the net, and Vernon was very low and hunched up in, in, the, in the crease. But now the game has really evolved to the point where it's about movement and efficiency. How how efficient a goalie is in their movements, and you hear the term a quiet a quiet goalie a lot. They're they're not flying around. Their head isn't whipping around. You know the game has become so much more east west than north south. It's about how they how their post play is and how how they can react to shooting how, from the one side to a play in front of the net and how how quickly they can push off and get across the net and the term mm-hmm. the tr- goal tracking the puck is used a lot too and that that comes in, into yes. play with the efficiency of movement and just how the goalie now it's it's almost the less movement the better whereas before it was just get up and flop around like the Dominic Hasek era where he's laying there flailing at pucks. You don't want that now. You want the goalie who can go post-to-post, post, move, move, get it. stay in front, of, not, not be chasing the play and constantly swimming back into the net. So it, it, it's really evolved into a game where it's, it's not just about a bigger goalie, it's how they move and how quietly they are and how they can really kind of see the play in front of them.
1: You know, it's interesting because Woodley always makes this point with me when we talk about athletic goaltenders. You know, we tend to think like, oh, the wildly acrobatic. And he said, hold on a second here. That just means you're out of position. He said in the goalie fraternity, uh, being an an acrobatic or athletic netminder means you're able to get to position quickly and efficiently and get ready to make a save that everyone looks at and says, well, that was easy. Actually, all the pre-movement before the save is all the hard part, and that takes great athletes, and that's why Kerry Price was probably the best of the uh, of the last generation and certainly Henrik Lundqvist as well. Um, Kevin, I'm up, I'm up against the clock, but I wanted to make sure that we had a, a long time to talk about this, and I've been encouraging everybody to, to pick this one up. It's one of those books that allows hockey fans to learn to love and understand the game that they already love, but love it in a different way. And that's where I really find value uh, in this one. You know, I've talked about sticks before I've talked about pucks and I've talked about goaltending and the, the future of hockey, but the way that you write about it, uh, is, it, is, is intriguing, is fascinating, is educational, and this is a treasure, man. I know I'm going on about this book like it invented oxygen, but I really liked it. It was uh, a really great read, and I, I encourage everyone to pick it up. The Science of Hockey, the Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport, my guest has been the great Kevin Snow. Kevin, thanks so much for this. Stay in touch, pal. Thanks for
0: having me on, Jeff. Take care.
1: There is Kevin Snow, uh, used to be the communications director with the Buffalo Sabres, media relations coordinator, um, and now an, an outstanding uh, outstanding hockey writer slash researcher. Uh, Going to hit a break. Uh, ch- check this book out. Like, if you're looking for a new hockey book to read... That's the one. Going to come back and hear from Jason Robertson uh, of the Dallas Stars. Elliot and I sat down with him on Monday. The full interview is available on our podcast that came out earlier on today. In the meantime, quick break. Back with a clip from Jason Robertson of the Dallas Stars. Keep it here.
2: Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafs land.
4: Real Kipper and Bourne. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
1: One final thought. I love getting these DMs, and they're open. I leave them. I read them. Get back to you. Um, from Sean, quote, The last drive is what led me to being a non-parent coach in Stouffville. Couldn't love it more. a boy. Um, all right. Welcome back to the program. We're going to wrap up with... Um, Part of an interview that elliot and i did with jason robertson of the dallas stars on monday uh in dallas before their morning skate we were there and you know did a number of interviews whether it's uh jake ottinger jim nill pete DeBoer, max tommy a few that i'm leaving out wyatt johnston uh as well um dallas really opened our doors uh, their doors to us and we're really accommodating and essentially let us go wherever we wanted and talk to anybody um pretty much anybody, that we wanted on camera uh, and for the podcast as well. So in that spirit, we present uh, Jason Robertson, uh, accomplished goal scorer and, you know, one of the players that we point at when we say both on and off the ice, this guy's kind of the future of hockey. Here's Jason Robertson from the 32 Thoughts podcast on The Merrick Show. Enjoy. Jason, first of all, thanks for making time. Second of all, I'm curious what you think about When you look at the season that you're having, this is one of the best individual seasons any Dallas Stars player has ever had. Back-to-back 40-goal seasons, first time anyone from the Dallas Stars has done that. Does any of that really matter to you? Or what do you think about when you think of this season that you're having and your breakout season last year?
4: Well, uh, I think I just keep representing Dallas as much as I can. Um, You know, I'm just the type of player to try to go out and produce and produce. And I think with every year still trying to get better, and that's kind of shown over the past few years. I mean, it's only my third year this year, so I had a lot of improvements. I still think I can improve more in certain areas, but the improvement kind of reflects on the stat sheet. But Mm -hmm. I think... uh, I mean, you know, a team's playing super well this year, right? I don't want to jinx it, but, you know, my line's plus 30, you know, this year. <laughs> you know, it's probably probably yep. up there in top, you know, forward. So definitely that's underlooked stat. that's pretty important to, to everyone.
1: I love talking to goal scorers, and I'm always curious about one thing because you established yourself as one of the best in the NHL last season. Is it harder this season to score? Because I'm figuring, I mean, teams are game planning for you. Do you find it tougher this year at all?
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's tougher. I think there are definitely people who pay more attention. Um, the line matchups, you know, sometimes are are a little a little funky, as, as I'm used to. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you're still trying to take advantage of what they give you. And you look at McDavid this year, and I'm not saying I'm McDavid, but McDavid has 60 goals here. And everyone knows that he's the best player in the world, so he's still yeah. proving he's finding ways to do it, so uh for me i just you know i'm on the ice with tremendous amount of talent and that allows me to to get open to get in the spots and to feed me the puck and certainly our power play is really good this year too which allows me to to get more more chances and more opportunities so uh and i'm sure it's it's gonna get more tough and more difficult as the years go by but hopefully i can take that next step and the confidence and really striding to be the better player and hopefully uh, be able to score more goals.
2: All right, I have a few questions that have come out of these answers. Number one, when you say the line matchups are funky, who are you seeing more of this year that you never saw before?
4: I wouldn't say that. Actually, the only reason I say that is, and it's actually kind of funny because we're playing Seattle tomorrow, but you know, we were in Seattle this past week, and we played them two games there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I swear we, we lined up against the same five guys the whole game. Which you know it's fine and you know it's good. You know, want to play against the, the top players, but it's just like you know feel like a playoff series, right? You're, you're playing. We play two games, so yep. the whole two games we playing against the same two D pairings and uh, same forwards. So uh, we play tomorrow. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was a little funky, and so that's what the first thing came on my top of my head is this past road trip. But but you want that, don't you? Yeah, I mean, like you
1: want to play against the top. Dogs, I would love right? that because
2: it's like it's also predictable. I know. What I have to do. I know what their tendencies are as much as they know what mine
4: are. Everyone has an idea. I mean, Joe, I'm sure, has been like that for his whole career, basically his whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, Roop, too. But I wouldn't say beginning of the year wasn't that as, uh, as that funky, but I mean, like, uh, you know, hard or, or as accurate line matchups mm-hmm. as opposed to the end of the year. But I mean, when it comes to playoff time, it's, it's going to happen, right?
1: Your overtime winner against Calgary was one of the nicest OT goals of the season. And I don't know how many times I I must have watched this thing. I watched it while while it happened on TV. And since then I've watched it about a a dozen more times. And so much in there is great, whether it's the toe drag, whether it's, you know, moving Markstrom across. But the thing that really I keep coming back to is how high your hands are on your stick when you take that backhand. Like, that's a really high-level shot. Two things. Can you walk us through that OT winner? And two, how often are you working on your backhand?
4: First, I'll answer your last question first. On my backhand, I, it's funny, one of those things that, you know, you don't really appreciate the backhand, but, I mean, there's only certain areas where you use a backhand shot, and that's whether you're free in front of the net. I mean, you can't take a backhand shot from the top of the circles unless, you know, your dots You can... You know, you're going bar down and it's backhand. It's hard. It, yeah. So it's rare that you're going to take that good of a backhand shot and get that much power on it. So you don't use it as often as you think or would like to use. So, uh, you know, you definitely try and practice but and stuff, but, I mean, the only time you're using is if literally you're one-on-one with a goalie. Because yep. someone's checking you, it's it's hard. It's a backhand. So it's not often you get to do that. But mm-hmm. as far as the goal, I mean, just playing hockey out there, I mean, just knowing that. The game situation, you know, there's only 15 seconds left, and I mean, you're just trying to make that last, you know, effort to try to score a goal. And this thing comes natural, not natural to me, just kind of surprises me. You know, I've tried a couple times this year to, you know, put that little (laughs) flair, not never in overtime or or certainly at that stake, more so in games that are kind of out of hand, and you know, you want to try something, something fun or or something get the guys in the bench excited about. Sometimes it actually works. I just don't get the shot off I want because <laughs> uh, on five on five, I just get checked by some other guy. But I mean, I guess in three on three, there's a lot more ice and a lot more space to operate. And you know, in that one play, I think you know the defenseman has to respect, root, beat his guy up the ice, mm-hmm. and kind of sucked him back. I was kind of in a coasting motion, which is kind of uh, is a deceptive motion because you. I mean, I don't have that shimmy shaking me, but mm-hmm. somebody could do that. And, yeah that just started trying to try something new that he wouldn't expect. I mean, I didn't expect it would work. Um, And then just, I mean, when you're in tight like that, you just got to get it up. And it was exciting when it happened. It was definitely an exciting moment for for me, for the team, for for everyone, our fans, I'm sure. Everyone enjoyed that one.
1: You know, Connor is going to win the Hart Trophy. We all know that. But the conversation uh, around the Hart Trophy is still interesting outside of Connor, And you're in there. Do you feel like you should be in that conversation
4: I don't know it was kind of uh and I'm not going to compare it because it's kind of apples and oranges but when you think about that I mean two years ago it was uh it was Kirill and I but it was all Kirill right so it's like <laughs> it, it's kind of similar right here so it was like yeah. he got all the votes and I you just knew he was going to win it so I don't really think about that I mean it is one thing or another but mm. if I could be player that the team wants me to be i mean you know it's an individual trophy and i think for mcdavid he's what 35 what 40 points ahead of the next guy i mean it's ludicrous, and it's out of this world he's definitely your mvp and mvp of the league so um but for us it's you know we got three or four guys 30 goals three guys with 30 goals 30 plus goals you know johnny just hit 20 goals we everyone's producing in our team and we're all reaping the benefits of, of what we've been doing all year, you know, that structure and what Pete's done and, and everything, and I've been one of the bigger fortunate guys to be able to do that, and they put me in a position to do that. So I, I don't really think there's an MVP of the, of the year, definitely, and it's McDavid. What he's doing is incredible, but yeah. for our team, the Dallas Stars, I think it's, it's more so um, everyone buying in and guys reaping the benefits.
1: We've talked a lot about McDavid and the game against the Oilers. After your collision with McDavid – you're skating off. Eckholm says something to you. What did he say?
4: <laughs> well, no, it wasn't anything bad. I mean, you know, he just told me not to, I think, stick my leg out again. Uh, and I told him, like, I, 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 I'm not going to try to do it again. I mean, God, I'm <laughs> not going to try to hurt. I was never trying to hurt the guy. I mean, so it was, uh, it was just one of those things that, you know, I've never had I don't think I've ever had one of those things in my career yet, where I had kind of that uh, knee-on-knee collision. But I mean, whatever. It is what it is. But certainly, I'm not a dirty player. I think I'm telling that guy, yeah. like I'm not a dirty guy. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to do it again. But uh yeah, it was uh one of those things where I'm sure, I hope if someone did that to me, I mean, someone on our team would, you know, confront the guy. But whatever, it is what it is. It's hockey.
1: It's hockey. That's uh, Jason Robertson of the Dallas Stars. What I liked about that answer is the pause. And when we uh, when we put out the video of the interview, you can really see how Jason Robertson is wrestling with how he's going to answer the question. <laughs> and if you've done this long enough, you know when someone's trying to you know put some perfume on the answer here. Uh, a little bit. Um, but that was, you know, going back to the Edmonton game when Robertson had the knee on knee accidental. Like, Jason Robertson's not going after anyone's knee, especially not Connor McDavid, had that situation. And uh, on their way off the ice, he was, uh, how shall we say, Matt Marchese, he had a um, an exchange of ideas um, with uh, Edmonton Oilers uh, defenseman. How about that? Matthias Eckholm I- deciding to exchange some ideas with Jason Robertson.
3: I, I do like how Robertson at the end is like, I hope that if somebody did that to me, that one of my teammates would say <laughs> something, but I don't know. <laughs> I was hoping that,
1: you know, Jamie Benn might come and straighten someone out on my behalf. That would certainly be really nice. Um, Jason Robertson of the Dallas Stars. Did you watch much of that or any of that uh, Dallas-Pittsburgh game last night?
3: I watched a little bit. I, mean, I watched more near the end because I was kind of flipping through a bunch of things. But you know, oh, the end was awesome. Third period was Yeah. Great. Well, J- Jake Ottinger was just on another planet last night. Like he was good. And you know what? Like I, I wanna I wanna look at the Penguins week and say it could have gone so much better. Like they-, they go and throw everything they can at Dylan Ferguson, I don't know, who makes forty seven saves. Game? No,
1: but, but they lose to the Ottawa game. game. They were fantastic.
3: Yeah, but they yeah, lose yeah, the yeah, Ottawa man. game. Right. And so Ferguson was incredible. They threw everything in the kitchen sink at him. They threw everything in the kitchen sink at yeah. Ottinger last night. Like we could be looking at them saying, they very, Don't... they could have been 3 and 0.
1: Yeah. The thing that you, you knew you're going to get that out of Ottinger because uh, I was at the game against Seattle on the, what day would that have been? Wednesday? Uh, it's the game against Seattle on the Wednesday. No, Tuesday. It's at the Tuesday game against Seattle. And the whole team was, they just come off a 12 game road trip. Um, and they had finished up against uh, Calgary on the Saturday, and you could just tell that they were off. Like you know that first game back after the long road trip, where it's like you've kind of let yourself sort of decompress a little bit, and then you got to crank the machine back up. You could tell that was Dallas in the ease for the first period for sure, and then for partway through the second, that's really kind of when Dallas got going. And in the process, I'll just be blunt: like Ottinger oh, wasn't that good. He he really just wasn't. And it's very seldom that you're going to see two questionable performances back to back from Jake Ottinger. So mm-hmm. you could pretty much be sure that the Pittsburgh Penguins, and they had a day rest and the Penguins didn't, they played that game against Colorado, that you were going to get a great Jake Ottinger. And how many scoring chances? Like, did you watch that last minute? when uh when they were just like... I think it was like 10, 10 shots directed at the net. Like, how many great yeah. game-saving saves did Jake Ottinger make? Anyway, he was he was fantastic yesterday, but I don't know. I I mean, if you're Pittsburgh, you want to get the thing into overtime so you get a point so you can create a little bit more of a, a cushion between you and the Florida Panthers, but I don't know. Pittsburgh played hard last night. They played the great game against Colorado. That's a tough back-to-back Colorado-Dallas. I don't know. I kind of thought it was... I know that Ottawa game was a stink, but... I think that uh, we saw this week how good Pittsburgh can be. Like, that's the thing. We saw how great Pittsburgh can be. And again, like, if, if it ends up being Pittsburgh and Boston in the first round, I think Boston will win, but I'm not 100% just based on how we've seen Pittsburgh play at certain times this season, goaltending is going to be a problem, especially now with the Tristan Jari situation. But mm-hmm. I don't know, man. What's a, As we wrap up the show, what, what stuck out to you as we wrap up the week and get into the weekend here?
3: Well, it was a couple, couple milestones. So one would be Connor McDavid gets to 60 goals. We know that one. But Sidney Crosby became the first, and I was kind of surprised yeah. by this, the first player to score 30 goals in his 18-year-old season and his 35-year-old season. Wow, or 35-plus.
1: Yes, we really need to stop being surprised at anything Crosby does. But uh, your point is a good one. Uh, Hey, listen, don't forget... Um, Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday. Uh, Leafs and Hurricanes, Blue Jackets and Habs, Sens and Devils, those are your early games, 7 o'clock Eastern. Uh, later games, Canucks and Stars, Golden Knights, and the Oilers. That's a big one. All the action gets underway with Hockey Central at 6.30 Eastern with your host, Ron McLean. Thanks to everyone who took part in today's show, and a special thanks to Sasha and Matt Marchese for filling in earlier on this week. Thank you, Jen Rolnick, for making it look good, and Lance Kennedy always makes it sound good. Tasty. Have a great weekend back on Monday with more of the Jeff Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Have a great weekend.